What we do on Thursday nights is we come together, we sing, and then we open the Bible together. And this semester we're looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, my graphic's not up there. Maybe it wasn't in the slides this week. Uh, but our series this uh, semester of Philippians, we're, we're looking at the gospel of joy. Because as we began to talk about last week, a lot of people call this letter, Paul wrote a bunch of letters, uh, but a lot of people refer to this letter of his as the epistle of joy because it's this theme that no matter what he's talking about, he keeps coming back to it. That there is a joy, a real, solid, and ultimate joy that can be found in the gospel, that can be possessed by us, those who believe the gospel and are in Christ. It's a joy that permeates all of life, that pierces through any circumstance that you may find yourself in. It is a real and lasting and ultimate joy. And last week as Paul opened this letter, he kind of just kind of burst forth with his love for these Christians at Philippi. And he talked about how this joy that he has in his life is tangibly manifested in the relationships that he has with the people uh, at Philippi. But tonight, if you'll remember, last week Paul made this really bold claim that he was sure, 100% sure, that when God starts something, he finishes it. He specifically applied that to the lives of the believers at Philippi. And what I want you to see this week is before we're about to jump in here in verse 12 of chapter 1 uh, is that Paul is ready to back that up by talking about real life. Because real life, if you know anything about it, right, can sometimes get in the way of joy or the pursuit of joy or holding on to joy. There's lots of things in real life on any given day that try to take joy away from us or that can take joy away from us. And so I want you to see how Paul addresses real life here. What we're going to do is we're going to read uh, verses 12 through 30. But tonight is actually part one of real life. Okay, we're actually going to come back uh, in two weeks uh, because we don't have RUF next week. That's an announcement and I'll make at the end. Um, We're going to come back to the latter half of this passage in two weeks. But let's read this together. Philippians 1 starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for to, me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us this evening. Again, Paul You see him, he keeps coming back to this theme that he still rejoices even in the midst of hard times. Hard times. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the musical Les Mis. Um, I I love it. Um, It says a lot about me, maybe. I don't know. Um, But I do love it. I love all the songs. I love the story. Uh, There's a lot of tragic characters in Les Mis, but I don't think there's any of them more tragic than Fantine, right? Or Fontine. I don't speak French, sorry. Um... But Fontaine, she's a single mother. She loses her job. She then prostitutes herself to make money. She then gets sick and she dies. That's her story in the musical. Um, Her song that she sings that Anne Hathaway uh, sang in a movie and pretty much won an Oscar just on this song. This is how the song goes. I dreamed a dream in times gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But there are dreams that cannot be and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream that my life could be so different from this hell I'm living So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I know that's just like a heavy buzzkill right there out of the gate, right? Her story is tragic, I said that. But remember here, as we look here in Philippians, as Paul continues this letter, Paul made that really bold claim that he is sure that what God finishes, he starts. And now what I want to offer to you that we see in this passage tonight is that Paul is ready to back that up in the way that he views and understands his own life. That he looks at his life, he looks at the circumstances and he says, I am sure that God is at work. I may not be exactly sure how it will work out and how it will go, but I know where I'm headed. And so I can rejoice. That's kind of what he says here. That there is a real joy that even can be found in real life. That real life that Fontaine said had killed the dream that she dreamed. So three things I want to look at about, what, about real life here that Paul points out for us. Uh, the first one is that life is hard. Second one, that life, this life is not all that there is. And finally, we'll look that this life matters. The first thing here is that this life is hard. Who needed to go to school to find that out, right? 
Life is hard. This life is hard. Paul does not shrink away here or elsewhere in any of his letters in admitting and dealing with and identifying the fact that life is hard. Life can be messy. Life can be painful. Life can be filled with sorrow. Life can lead us to despair. These things are real. And they are part of real life. And the Bible itself doesn't shrink away from these truths about life. I don't, when you think about suffering and the real life and what the Bible has to say about it or what Christians or Christianity has to say about it, I wonder where your mind most automatically goes. Um, whether you're a Christian looking for comfort in it or whether you're some, maybe an outsider to Christianity thinking how do Christians deal with it. Maybe you think of like Romans 8, right? Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's the one we love to tweet out, right? Or maybe hashtag, I don't know, in our head. Maybe you think of Isaiah, where God promises that he will give a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Maybe you think of the Shane and Shane song with John Piper in the background. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Right? Look, there's a ton of beautiful truths. I could list a ton of beautiful truths that the Bible says about suffering and life in this world. And even in the midst of our sorrow and our very real suffering and finding joy and finding purpose and finding meaning. Um, But here's the thing. There's more than a few of you in a room this size, right? More than a few of you have experienced very real suffering in this life. And you know from experience... That a Bible verse doesn't necessarily help in the moment. There's others of you, more of you still maybe, that maybe you have the feeling that if and when you experience very real suffering, maybe you'll need a little bit more than just a Bible verse here or there, right? And here's what you need to understand. Again, the Bible is very realistic about suffering and about life. And the pains of this life. And the things that happen in real life. And here and elsewhere, Paul is very realistic about this life and suffering. I just want to read you one example because I kind of think it's hilarious. But it's, it's serious. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is actually defending his apostleship against false apostles. And so this is why. So it's a, it's a totally different reason as to why he's talking about suffering here than what he's talking about in Philippians. But I just want to read it for you so that you know that Paul knows what he's talking about. This is what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And then he says in parentheses, I'm talking like a madman. It literally says that. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Danger Will Robinson. Didn't say that. In told and hardship. Toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Don't you love how he has this whole long list of things that none of us have ever come close to experiencing? At the end, like the cherry on top is, and the churches are wearing me out. (laughs) Only a minister might understand that one, like me. Um, Paul was more than well acquainted was suffering. He knew it. He lived it. 
He'd experience in our passage in our passage tonight. Look there. The first thing he talks about is his imprisonment. You go to Acts 21 and you can read about this imprisonment. He's in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had actually already told him if he went to Jerusalem, affliction awaited him there. He goes, the Jews see that he's there, they round him up and they start beating him. And as the story reads, if the Roman soldiers hadn't have showed up, they would have beat him to death. He speaks of division in the church. He's talking about the fact that there are people in the church that because Paul's in prison, they see it as an opportunity for themselves. To grow their own ministries. That, that's what he's talking about. And then death, right? Death was a very real moment by moment possibility for Paul. It's right there in front of him. He understood the trials of this life. And so at the outset, this should tell us a few things. And the first one is this. And again, it sounds redundant. But the first thing is this that this should tell us. The problem of pain and suffering and evil is a real problem. It is a real problem. And here's the thing. It's not just a problem for religious people. It's not just a problem uh, philosophically for people who believe in a good and all-powerful God. The problem of pain and suffering and evil in this world is a problem for any worldview. Any worldview has to deal with it because it's real. There's no denying it. There's no getting away from it. You're going to anesthetize yourself from it, but you're still not getting away from it. But, and so what I want you to understand is that when it comes to the Bible, what the Bible has to say about suffering, the Bible does not ever even come close to saying, look, suffering's not that big of a deal. Press on. Doesn't do that. It talks about the realities of it and how terrible it is. God takes suffering in this world so seriously... That as Tim Keller says, he hung his own son on the hook of human suffering. Because that's the only way that he could deal with it without destroying us. And so he destroyed his own son. The problem of pain and suffering in this world are real. But secondly, I want to say this, maybe a little bit more personally to all of you. This also tells us you are not alone there's one thing that the devil uses suffering and pain in this life to do to you is to try to convince you that no one else knows how you feel you feel that don't you again i brought this up last week it was my experience as a freshman 16 years ago i know it's many of your experiences or has been many of your experiences you come to a place a campus like this you're surrounded by thousands of people and you've never felt more alone in your life I'm here to tell you, you're not the only one that feels that way. You're not. I know that doesn't automatically make it better, but it is true. You know, some of you, you've been through things, admittedly, that I can't even come close to imagining. But you still need to hear it. You're not alone. And you really can tell people. You really can let people into those things. You really can let other people bear your burdens. Paul in Galatians actually commands us to do that, to bear one another's burdens. Some of you need to hear that there are people to your left and to your right every single day who have been through things that you cannot come close to imagining. And they need you. It's a very real problem in our lives, is it not? Look at verse 14. I think it's fascinating that Paul says this. Look, there's these 
brothers that have become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. So Paul's not glorying in his plight. It wasn't a good thing. He didn't enjoy it. But he does look at it and he realizes he's not alone. He knows that there are things being done in the lives of others because of what he's going through. Because he's not alone. And in this instance, it's positive for him. And so there's a sense in which there were people that were saying, if Paul can trust Jesus even through this, then so can I. Or there's people that saying, if Jesus could sustain Paul through this, then he can sustain me. We're supposed to be doing that with one another in how we share our lives with one another. That is why I make such a... If you're around me at all for any extended period of time, you're going to hear me say a lot, I want you to be in places where you can get to know people and let them get to know you. This is what we're supposed to be doing for one another. This life is hard, but we're not alone. The second thing, though, you'll see that Paul moves on who is, this life is not all that there is. This life is hard, There's no denying it. We're not supposed to escape past it. But we are supposed to understand this life is not all that there is. And that's actually a comforting thing. Look at the end of verse 18 uh, and the beginning of verse 19. And yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So again, Paul's asserting this certainty, right? He knows in some sense it will turn out for his deliverance. But at the same time, you see that he goes on to say, but I don't actually know what's going to happen. Did you find that interesting? I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And then he says, but I actually don't know which way it's going to go. So, you know, which is it? Is he certain or is he not, right? Um, And it's all summed up in verse 21. And again, we'll come back to this a little bit next week too. uh, Next time too, but look at verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. It's a powerful verse, right? But I want you to soak it in, especially if like, you grew up in church or around church, and that's a familiar verse to you. I want you to soak that verse in. That is a powerful statement, once again, a bold statement. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so I want you to be honest. What kind of worldview can say something like that? What do you have to know about yourself and about life to be able to so strongly and boldly assert something like he does there in verse uh, 21? And again, you've got to understand. First here, Paul is in imprisonment under the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard is like the elite of the elite of the Imperial Guard, okay? Uh, And most likely, what we know of how people were imprisoned with those type of soldiers is most likely he was chained every moment of the day to one or two soldiers. Parentheses, that's kind of why he says all the guards know about Jesus. (laughs) Because I'm chained to them and I won't stop talking about it. Um, Right? But that would not have been comfortable. I can't imagine going to the bathroom would have been very fun in that situation, right? It would have been humiliating. More than that, a very real circumstance for Paul is every time the door opens, it could be the time that he goes outside and they nail him to a cross, as history tells us is what eventually happened to him. At any moment, the last time that door swings open could, the next time the door swings open could be his last. It's to that reality that in this letter, Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
It's a remarkable statement, right? Now, look, I want you to take the first part of that and think, break this down. Take the first part of that. To live is Christ. I want you to take out Christ and fill in the blank. To live is what? Fill in the blank. What is it for you? What, what are the more natural things that we usually say or, or think or feel that to live is what? How is your life answering that question for you? How is your life showing that you're filling in that blank? Here's some questions that I borrowed um, to help you analyze this for yourself. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you wake up? Is it trying to remember maybe what you did last night? Could be. Is it all the things on your to-do list? And if you don't get them done, you might not be able to go to sleep again. I know some of you feel that. Uh, Where does your mind wander when it has free time to do so? Where does your mind most naturally drift to? Is it the next time you get to take a nap? That's that's what it was for me in college. Let's see. Two hours. All right. Um... Is it the next vacation? Is it the next football game? The next person? Maybe you're going to date or want to date. What do you do with your time? What are you actually doing with your time? You know, on a campus like this, you have a million choices with what to do with any given hour. What are you doing with those hours? What are you not doing with those hours? Where do you spend your money? What are you spending your money on? Maybe another way to think about it is, what are you saying no to spending money on, knowing full well what you really want to spend it on? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He's not saying, hey guys, I'm a super Christian. It's not what he's saying. For me to live is Christ. He's saying that I have checked my life over and over And I continue to find the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He can't get away from it. For me to live... I think there's a sense in which Paul would agree with this statement. That he's basically saying, I couldn't even get out of the bed in the morning if it wasn't for Jesus. For me to live is Christ. And so he's saying, like, look, the more I live, the more I'm leaving everything else behind... That I might have more and more and more of Jesus. And that sounds like the most super christian thing ever. But he means it. He's genuine about it here. So how could he say, okay, if he says that, if that's to live, then how could he then turn around and say to die is gain? No one would look at their life and see the things that they love and treasure and value and say, and so to die is better. It still is kind of hard to believe, right? Well, think about it. Anything else that you would put in the blank other than Jesus, when you die, what happens? You lose those things. Look, you could fill in those blanks with perfectly good things. Family, marriage, children, grades, getting a good job, being a responsible adult, being a responsible citizen, whatever. But whatever you fill in the blank with, when you die, they're gone. It's over. But you see what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, what Paul is saying. For me to live is Jesus, but to die... Is even more Jesus. That's a great way to put it, right? Look, this is really hard for most of us to grasp because our culture, everything in our culture, what it tells us to do and how it operates is all about comfort. Uh, our culture is really ill-equipped to help us understand and learn how to deal with suffering because a lot of us haven't dealt with any real suffering at all. Even more than that, 
It'd be interesting to poll the room, but I'd be willing to bet that the majority of people in this room have never seen a dead body. You ever thought about that? Death is so far, is so, so uh, foreign to our radar. And again, look, m- there's millions of things that you could be doing at any given hour. And there's so many of you, I could ask you, uh, if maybe we're trying to get together for coffee or something, which, hey, I'd love to do that. It's part of my job. Um, just a little no- announcement there. But I could ask you, like, when's your free time? And you can immediately say, well, I got a free hour here. I got a free two hours here. And you just, like, you're, audit- you're not even looking at your phone and you know exactly where your free hours are. You know when the next uh, class is. You know when the next assignment is due. You know when the next party is. You know when the next football game is. You know it all. But have you ever thought about this? Does this thought ever cross your mind? That you have no idea if you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't. None of us do. I said earlier, we're going to be back in two weeks. I have no idea if I'm going to be back here in two weeks. I don't. There's really, truly only one certainty in this life, isn't there? And that is our impending deaths. That is the only certain thing, is that we are all one day closer tomorrow to our death. That's the reality of this life. And so, what are you going to do with that? Maybe more than that, will you even take that up and deal with it? And see how it applies to your life? Paul looks at a situation, a very real situation, and he says, If I live, it's Jesus. But if I die, more Jesus for eternity. Look, some might look at that and say, and I get it, I get it, and not enough time to really give it all justice. But some might look at this and say, look, that's just the willful ignorance of faith. Or the willful ignorance of religion and spirituality. I I get it, I do. But I want you to see, as we conclude it part one tonight. I want you to see how it is that Paul arrives at this certainty even though death stares him in the face. You want to know what it is? It's that he knows what he's living for. Paul has this certain and confident and even rejoicing view that death is very real because he knows what he's living for. So that's the last thing here. This life is hard. But we also need to know that this life is not all that there is. But we also need to know that this life matters. This life matters. And again, we're going to unpack this even more in a couple weeks. But Paul had certainty. He had assurance when he was thinking about death. Because Paul knew what he was living for. Uh, One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of this was a guy named Joseph Sohn who was a pastor and missionary in Romania um, when Romania was still in, under the strangleholds um, of communism in the, as part of the Eastern Bloc uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and he was arrested times and multiple times for being a pastor and for being a Christian. And he recounts one time especially when he was pretty brutally interrogated by six men. And then that interrogation led him finally to say this to one of his interrogators. Listen to this. Look, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further. Because you are only an instrument of my God. He goes on to recount, Every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. In an interesting way. 
Another time still, he then addressed one of his captors like this. Sir, let me explain to you how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen to this man preach again because he died for what he said. My sermons will speak ten times louder than before, and I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. Again, wow. Later on, he was told this. We know, Mr. Soan, that you would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill your wish. (laughs) Now, here's where I'm going. I know this is long, but it's beautiful. So he reflects reflects on all that later. He says this. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered for how many years I had been afraid of dying. I would kept a low profile because I wanted to badly live. I would wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided that I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me that they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I had tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. It's beautiful, right? You see... How the same attitude displays displays itself here by Paul. Look at verse 12. He looks at his imprisonment. He doesn't dwell on it. But he says, look, what's happened to me has advanced the gospel. The whole imperial guard knows about Jesus. Verse 18. He looks, look, somebody, some people want to be better than me. And they want to prove to other people. And they want other people to think that they're better than me. But look, regardless, Christ is proclaimed. Verse 20, look, death is a very real possibility. I may live, I may die. But guess what? No matter what happens, Christ will be honored in my body. Why? Because that's what matters. And because that's what matters, my life does matter. Even though I have confidence that I might... That what happens if I die, I know that this life matters. But even more than that, because my life matters, my circumstances do not get to define my life. Because my life matters, my circumstances do not get to define my life. And he says that they do not get to tell the story here. They are part of the story, yes. A real part of the story. But they don't get to tell the story. My imprisonment. Look, that would have been so hard on his body, probably even more hard on his, on his spirit and his emotions. He doesn't dwell on that. Rivalry in churches, that had to have been heartbreaking. Paul preached Jesus and helped people know Jesus. And there's people out there that are preaching the same Jesus, he says, not false teaching. But they're doing it because they want to make Paul look bad. He could have told us every single thing that they did and he could have told us their names, but he doesn't. Because that's not what matters. That doesn't get to tell the story. 
death. Death was a daily, real possibility. He doesn't glory in it, but he has confidence in the prospect because that circumstance doesn't get to tell his story. Paul points to these things, but he points to them only so far as they point him and point us to the fact that God is still at work. That what God starts, He finishes. And I may not understand everything that is going on, but I know that God is at work and that's what matters. And so my life matters. And so again, I urge you, your circumstances do not get to tell your story. Again, the devil is so at work in your circumstances because what he makes you believe and feel is that your circumstances rule you. That what defines you is that you didn't get the scholarship that you thought you deserved before you came here. That what defines you is the fact that you aren't number one in that class. That what defines you is that you've never gotten a job while you've been in college. Or what that defines you is that your parents aren't still together. And so on, right? Look, some of you have experienced unspeakable heartache. Again, things that I can't even come close to imagining, right? Whether by divorce, death even, or disease. They don't get to tell the story. Some of you, you carry heavy, heavy burdens of shame and guilt because of decisions you've made or things that you've done. Maybe even if you've only been here for seven days. They do not get to tell the story. Some of you have been victims. Real victims. That, whatever it is, does not get to tell the story. Close with this illustration. In the 1600s, if you know anything about Protestant history in the 1600s in France is just a back and forth uh, between Protestants and Catholics, a very violent uh, back and forth um, persecution on both sides. And at one point in the late 1600s, uh, Protestant public worship became a crime Um, and men would be arrested trying to have worship out in the fields as they worked. And the sentence for getting caught worshiping in the field was to be enslaved in the, in the galley, in the bottom of a ship, uh, chained to a bench uh, and rowing until you died. And there's a museum actually in southern France, the Museum of the Desert in southern France, that has a model of one of these galleys. These Protestants were known as the Huguenots. Uh, and there's a model of one of these galleys and there's a model of one of the giant oars that a couple of men would have been chained to and would have had uh, to row on basically until their life ran out. Um, and inscribed on the wall um, in one of these model galleys is the inscription of a Huguenot man. And it says this. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. How can you wrap your mind around that? That somebody would have actually believed that and thought that and wrote that where they were chained to die. Look, nothing Paul says here or elsewhere suggests that any of this is easy. But I want you to look at verse 29. Where he says to them, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake.
How could there be any joy in any of this? I would suggest to you it is simple gospel algebra. Because I want you to look, look back at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You want to know what the simple gospel algebra of this is? Read verse 21 from Jesus' perspective. Because what the gospel says, verse 20 is, 21 is, from Jesus' perspective is this. For me to live is you. For me to die is you. That's what the gospel tells us is true. This life matters. So much so that Jesus himself willingly suffered. By his own choosing suffered. To have us. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, maybe even some of this right now as we think about it and consider it, it feels good. But if we're honest, we, we kind of know that maybe as soon as we wake up tomorrow, we're, we're going to forget it. Father, you know the realities of this life. And Lord Jesus, you have lived in the realities of this life. And you did it for us. Would we find joy in that? Would we know your love in that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.